I get asked often on how long does it take me to prepare a sermon? And my answer is, well, anywhere from 20 minutes to 40 hours. <laughs> and uh, what you do with the sermon, you, you look at the passage and you try to find the one driving point. And after you find the one driving point, things start getting put together and everything starts to under, understand. You start to understand everything and it starts to, starts to flow. And so it just sits there in your mind and it goes and it goes and it goes and it goes. And I don't preach Christmas very often about Christmas very often, so I was preaching about Christmas this morning, and I grabbed one, and then I'd find the point, and I'd work through the passage, and then I'd go to another part of the Christmas story, I'd find the point, and I'd work through the passage, I'd go to another Christmas story, I'd find the point and work through the passage, and, and it just kept going over and over and over and over and over in my mind, and uh, 40 hours later, I said, you know what, I'm just going to preach on all the passages, uh, because all of them come up with one specific point. In fact, the entire Christmas story comes under the category of one point, one drive, one message, one theme. And you start asking the question, well, why is the Christmas story even written? Well, the Christmas story was written in the Bible and it was recorded and given to us because there is one driving point that the Christmas story wants to get across. And that is why the authors penned the Christmas story in Scripture. So what is that one theme? What is that overdriving one point where all the stories through Isaiah John, Matthew, and Luke, all those stories put together, what's that one driving point that the authors want to get across? And the point is a revelation of who that baby is. In other words, who is that baby? So we're going to go from all the different books, all the Christmas stories, and when we look at all the different books and the strong principles in these stories, I want to show you that the point is who's the baby and people's response when they figure out who the baby is. So let's look at first one. The purpose of Isaiah's and John's account of the Christmas story is to tell us who the baby is. Isaiah penned his story 700 years before Christ even came. And as he penned this story, he says, somebody, something is going to come to this world. And this is what he puts down. Therefore, the Lord himself We'll give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and he will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Isaiah says, hey, there's going to be a baby born of a virgin. Who that baby's going to be? It's going to be God. That's who the baby's going to be. And then Isaiah 9 unfolds the picture of what God looks like, but again, explains to us who the baby is. For a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. That verse has 35 words in it. I counted them. In those 35 words you hear, the baby is God, the baby holds a government on his shoulders, the baby is a wonderful counselor, the baby is a mighty God, the baby is an everlasting father, the baby is the Prince of Peace. What's the point of that verse? want to tell everybody who this baby is. There's going to be a baby that's going to come, and let me give you a revelation who the baby is. Well, John, he wrote during the time after Christ was born, he wrote the Christmas story as well. It's like, there's a Christmas story that's found in John? Absolutely. In fact, John 1.1 starts with the Christmas story, but we often don't think, is that really the Christmas story? Because he gets right to the point. I'm just going to tell you who the baby is. I'm going to get no manger, no shepherds, no stars. Let me just tell you who the baby is. Here's his Christmas story. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made. 
seed that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And then John 1.14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father. Now you can preach an entire year just specifically on that passage because it paints a picture who the baby is. And he grabs it with a center word called word. But what he unfolds in this passage, which we can't spend a lot of time on because we're going to all the other passages as well, is that the baby was in the beginning. The baby was with God. The baby was God. All things were made through the baby. In the baby was life, and the life was the light of men. The baby became flesh. The baby is the glory of the one and only from the Father. What's the point in his Christmas story? Well, I'm just going to tell you who the baby is, and in the process of telling you who the baby is, I'll even give you a mind picture to give you an understanding of what is in Mary's womb. And that was his explanation of the Christmas story. Let's go to two different accounts. The other two accounts are in Scripture, which would be Matthew and then also Luke. Number two, the purpose of Matthew's account of the Christmas story is to tell us Joseph's and Herod's reaction to who the baby was. Now, during Christmas, when my children were um, get up in the Christmas, get up before the Christmas tree. They'd get up really early. That's the only time they'd ever get up early. Get up really early. And uh, they'd open up presents. And when they opened up presents, what would they do? They were just had this look of awe, a look of excitement, a look of this is so amazing because there was just this shock that came to their system. Well, that shock doesn't leave, just the presents get a little bit more expensive as they get older. As in a sense of Wednesday, I went up to Bellingham, Washington, and I bought my 15-year-old daughter, who's almost 16, a car so she can drive it when she gets her um, birthday, or when she gets to her birthday and gets her driver's license. So I was driving home from Bellingham, and she called about 20 times. How's the car? What does the car look like? Does the car drive right? Does the car shift good? Does the car look, smell good? I mean, all these explanations of this overwhelming excitement. So I even pulled out you know, my little phone when, she, when I pulled in the parking lot and she came out and I watched her like, oh, dad, it's a wonderful car. But there's this look of joy when she sees this, this gift. Well, Matthew's account is what takes place when the baby is described to an individual. And I will tell you that it's very similar with Joseph. When he sees who the baby is, there is an emotional response that comes. And that's what Matthew's account of Christmas is, is Joseph's response and then Herod's response. Let's look at Joseph's response first. This is how the birth of Jesus came about. His mother, Mary, was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. Now, what kind of guy is Joseph? That passage gives us the kind of guy Joseph is. It says it right there, that Joseph is a righteous man. But even beyond just saying it, that he's a righteous man, it goes on that Joseph is a nice guy. He sees the situation that Mary is in. And when he sees the situation that Mary is in, he tries to do something about it. I don't want her to go through disgrace. He's not thinking about himself. He's righteous, nice, not thinking about himself, worried and concerned about Mary. So what does he do? He tries to do the right thing. I will divorce her quietly. He's going to have to marry her to divorce her. And the, re- 
this still isn't necessarily going to work. And the reason why is because people do math back in those days. You know, yeah, yeah, get married in January, you have a baby in May. You know, what is the math? Is that nine, is that nine months? So here Joseph is in a predicament, says, you know what I'll do? I'll, I'll marry her, then I'll divorce her. I think it would look good. Why is Joseph trying to do all this? He's trying to do all this is because I will tell you that he's concerned about his reputation of other, for others, his righteous reputation. And he's concerned about Mary. Joseph was also sacrificial. He says, I'll pay the price. I'll pay the price and do what I need to do to make sure that marriage or Mary is taken care of and to make sure that I still am righteous in front of everybody that deserves me, uh, observes me. But then look at 20. I'll tell you that everything changes. And watch what note it changes on. 20. But after he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you will give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Joseph had in mind one thing, An angel appeared to him, and everything changed. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him to do, and he took Mary to be his wife. What's that going to cost him? He's no longer going to look like a righteous man, is he? He's no longer going to appear to be a nice guy because he's going to appear to everybody that's around him to be somebody that took advantage of Mary before he, he was married. He no longer appears to do things right. He no longer was sacrificial because he really got caught up into sin by doing this. But you know what? He just doesn't care. Why doesn't he care? Because he found out who the baby was. (laughs) And once he found out who the baby was, everything changed for him. Once he found out who the baby was, everything changed. Now, Herod, King Herod, he had a a reaction similar emotional reaction to what Joseph did, except it was going the opposite direction. So Joseph had a reaction when he found out who the baby is. What was Herod's reaction when he found out who the baby was? Well, just to give you some pointers, that Herod was kind of nuts anyway. In fact, Herod was absolutely crazy. We'll, we'll, we'll put it that way. Herod was obsessive, mostly with his wives. He loves his wives so much that whenever he traveled, he told his top generals, if I die when I'm gone away from home, kill all my wives <laughs> because I don't want them to have to miss me for the rest of their lives. So I just, I just want them dead. So he also said, in fact, a, a story where Herod came home one time and he thought that his wife committed adultery and he was so obsessive that he loved her so much. He's like, you committed adultery? He just could not even live with that fact because of their bond. So what did he end up doing? He ended up killing her because he loved her so much or was obsessed with her so much. But after he killed her, um, he didn't bury the body. You know what he did? He put the body in honey to preserve the body, and he kept her in honey for seven years, just so to look at her, to observe her. Or maybe, you know, after a long day's work, he just liked coming home and saying, honey, I'm home. <laughs> that's, a stupid, that's a stupid joke. I shouldn't have should even said that. I'm just telling you, he's a, little, he's a little crazy, I'll tell you. And as he is a little crazy, there's a couple other things that he did. He had three heirs, three sons. And uh, one of the heirs conspired against the other two heirs and said, those two, King Herod, want your throne. 
So if somebody wants his throne, what is he going to do? He killed both of his sons. Five days before he died, he found out that that one son was conspiring, trying to get his throne, so he had him kill the two sons. So five days before he died, he then killed that son. And so then he died and he didn't have any heirs. So I'll tell you, he's a little, a little crazy. He was also worried that when he died, nobody would mourn him. And he's worried that Israel would rejoice if he died. So what he did is he brought all the priests, all the officials, some really top people that were in the country of Israel, and he locked them up. And he said, the day I die, kill all them because I want the country to be in mourning because he believed that they wouldn't mourn over him. So I will tell you that King Herod is a little, little crazy, but how did a crazy person like that get the throne? Just give you a little bit of history. This is during the Roman Empire. Julius Caesar appointed his father Antipater to be the governor um, of Judea, of Israel. And Antipater is Herod's dad, and this is the Roman Empire the Roman Empire right here. So as he appointed Antipater to be the dad, Antipater, or Antipater to be the governor of Israel, Antipater appointed Herod to be the one over Samaria. So as he is over Samaria, I'll tell you, the Parthians invaded the country of Israel and ran King Herod out. He then went back up to Rome. And when he went back up to Rome, um, they wanted Rome, Caesar wanted somebody to be the king of the Jews, and he appointed Herod to be the king of the Jews, and he says, what I want you to do is I want you to go down, and I want you to pull the Parthians out. Once you pull the Parthians out, I want you to be their king. You can set up your kingdom there so the, the Jews will have a king. So when he did, it took a while to get the Parthians out, but when he did, the first thing that he did was to build a temple. Remember what happened to Solomon's temple? It was destroyed by the Babylonians, and Zerubbabel, he came and rebuilt the temple after it was destroyed, but it was a scrawny-looking temple. But Herod did not build a scrawny-looking temple. He wanted to impress the Jews. He wanted the Jews to respond to him. He built this magnificent temple um, to please the Jews. But he also built theaters and racetracks and other entertainment for people. He built the port of Caesarea as he is building the country of Israel. It's all about giving himself glory as he is a king, but I will tell you that his palaces were the most beautiful palaces that were standing on the earth at the time. Absolutely gorgeous. And who was he? The king of the Jews, known as the king of the Jews. Matthew 2, 1 through 6. Here again is the Christmas story. We don't hear many parts of this Christmas story, but here's a Christmas story. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem and in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? <laughs> probably something you probably don't want to say in public, but we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed. Why would he be disturbed? This Magi walks into Jerusalem and says, hey, where is the king of the Jews? Now the Magi's are wise people, known as wise men, almost even known as kings. They study astronomy. They study, um, interpret um, dreams. They, they're people of, of magic. I mean, they're people that carry a lot of prestige. This guy's just walking in and says, whoa, I just found the king of the Jews. And he said, king? Herod's thinking, no, 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 no. I am king of the Jews. And if there is one king, there can't be two kings because if there's two kings, then that other king isn't the king. So what does he do? He goes, to the mag- uh, he goes to the Magi. He comes to the Magi and says, what did you see? He goes, well, I heard there's, there's a baby that's born. He's going to be king of the Jews. 
Herod says, well, I want you to track this baby down because I would love to see this baby. In his mind, I'd love to see this baby and I'd love to get rid of this baby because I'm the king of the Jews and if I am, he will not be. So then the Magi, of course, um, went to see Jesus and that's where you're going to get the, the three gifts that were given, incense, frankincense, or incense um, gold, and myrrh. And after he gave those, um, I don't know if there's two magis or three magis, but there was three gifts. But after he gave those, he got a vision to say, don't go back to Herod because Herod's going to kill the baby. So he went a different route. And when he did a different route, I'll tell you that Herod found out that he was tricked by the magi and that baby that was supposed to be king of the Jews, in Herod's mind, he was angry. Why was he angry? Because he was tricked for the purpose of saving the baby, saving the king of the Jews. Matthew 2, when Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under. Why would he do something like that? Because he was convinced who the baby was. He was convinced who the baby was. You see how long a Christmas story that is? But in the process of that Christmas story, there is one driving point is the Magi knew who the baby was, and then Herod got convinced who the baby was, and then Herod reacted because he found out who the baby was, and of course, in a very negative way. Number three, the purpose of Luke's account of the Christmas story is to tell Mary, the shepherds, and Simeon's reaction to who the baby was. It's actually even more people than that, but I tell you, I can't preach a a two-hour sermon in that Christmas story, there's two, uh, two chapters completely invested into that story written by the doctor Luke, a physician Luke. Now Luke was not there at the time, but he thought it was pretty important to figure out who that baby was because Paul the apostle was preaching that that baby was God. And he goes, well, how did that baby come about? So those two chapters, Luke went and he interviewed Mary. You can see it all the way through. Those two chapters is just an interview that has practically taken place. And what is Luke doing? He's writing down all the accounts of the birth. And that's where you can get the shepherds. That's where you can get the star. That's where you can get the entire story of the, the Christmas story. So let's look at Mary's perspective. Well, Mary's pregnant. She's unmarried. She's impoverished. She's a teenage girl. She's going to be tagged with stigma for the rest of her life. And I will tell you that her future looks really, really dim. Why does it look dim? Because she has a baby that's inside of her with no husband. Luke 1, 30 says, But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son. You are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and he will be called the Son of the Most High. She just found out who the baby was. What was her reaction after she found out who the baby was? I'll tell you what her reaction is, is that she writes the first Christmas carol. I'm not going to sing her whole Christmas carol, but let's just look at the first part of the Christmas carol. And Mary said, My soul glorifies in the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. Remember who she is? Pregnant, unmarried, impoverished, teenage girl tagged with stigma with a future that is very, very dim until she finds out who the baby was. Then she starts to pen words on paper that everybody will call me blessed. Why would you call her blessed? Because she found out who the baby was and she knows what is inside of her. 
What about the shepherd's reaction? Luke 2.8 talks about the shepherd's story. You can get the whole shepherd's story, but as you look at the shepherd's story, ask the question, what takes place when they find out who the baby is? Because that's the point of the story. And there were shepherds living in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flock by night. And the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the city of David, a Savior has been born to you, and he is Christ the Lord. They were terrified when they saw this vision. But what did they do next? They went to go see the baby. But what did they do after they saw the baby? It's found at the bottom of the story. Luke 2.17. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed and what the shepherds said to them. Now what's interesting is these shepherds went and told everybody about what? They went and told everybody about their dream. They went and told everybody about their angel visits. They went and told everybody about the baby that they saw in a manger. They weren't telling them about that according to the passage. What were they telling them? Telling everybody, because they spread the news of the gospel. They told everybody. What were they telling them? They were telling them and spreading the words concerning what had been told them about the child. That's what the passage says. This is what we're excited about we found out who the baby was. The angel said, Today in the city of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. I will tell you that was beyond the vision that made them terrified. That was even beyond seeing the baby in the manger. When they figured out who the baby was, everything got put in perspective. And what was everybody's response? All who heard about who the baby was were amazed at what the shepherds had said to him, the baby is God and God is here. The last story, we don't have a lot of information about this person, but he probably gives the strongest punch about the entire summary of who the baby was. Mary and Joseph, well, we know Mary for sure, we're assuming Joseph, but Mary and Joseph go to the temple to have their baby blessed. And this person who works at the temple, who is a righteous man named Simeon, comes up to him and blesses the baby. And watch the blessing that takes place. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many people in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. What did that verse say? This child is destined to cause the falling, of rising, of many, many in Israel? Let me just tell you who the baby is. This is what Simeon's saying. The sign, him, will be spoken against. The thoughts of many hearts will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your and my soul too. He's saying this world will never be the same again as a result of who that baby is. The world will always be different as a result of that baby coming to earth. In fact, it even marks the timeline before Christ and then after Christ. Everything will change because this baby and who that baby is has stepped foot on earth. And then he also says, and the sword will pierce your own soul too, meaning yours 2,000 years later, meaning 
mine 2,000 later, years later? Why? Because of a baby? No, because of who the baby is and who is the baby. The baby is God. Number four, the Christmas story, Jesus is God, is the foundation of the gospel. And therefore, it's a foundation of the word, it is the foundation of the message, and it is the foundation of your salvation. And if you take the Christmas story and you pull it out of the Bible, everything falls apart. Everything falls apart. And the reason why the Christmas story is written in the Bible is because Paul was preaching the gospel, saying Jesus is God and Jesus died and Jesus rose. That was Paul's gospel. Well, people backtracked to Paul's gospel and say, well, we better give the dynamics of Jesus is God. And they had to go back to his birth. And then we went back to the birth. You see he is born from a virgin, that he is God. In the beginning was a word. The word was with God. The word was God. The word was with God from the beginning. We get the entire dynamics inside the Christmas story. So take the Christmas story out and all the other dynamics then fall to the ground. Jesus is God is the first part of the salvation message. Now, as the world continued to go after Jesus was born, after Jesus died, after Jesus rose again, I will tell you that there's many different religions that all of a sudden started. Many different beliefs started, even inside the church. And all of a sudden, Christianity kind of got completely messed up. You know, well, what do we believe in? What do we anchor into? So there's a couple creeds that were written. The Apostles' Creed was written. And when the Apostles' Creed was written, they said, okay, this is the foundation of our belief, and therefore we are the church that holds on to this. Would they mention the Christmas story? Just look at the first part of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, born of the Virgin Mary. Saying the words, born of the Virgin Mary, he is God. Nicene Creed, another creed that is anchored the church. Let's read it to see if they had to mention the birth of Jesus. I will tell you that I'm going to read half of it, and the reason why I read half of it, because everything's building up to the birth, and then the other half is about the death and resurrection. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. I believe the one Lord Jesus, the only begotten Son of the God, born of the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, consubstantial with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us men and for our salvation, he came down from heaven and by the Holy Spirit was incarnate by a virgin of the Virgin Mary and he became man. That's half of the Nicene Creed. Jesus is God. This is where we base our structure and our foundation because it is a structure and our foundation of salvation, of salvation, and rejecting it and denying that Jesus is God is denying the gospel. Why would it deny the gospel? Number five, Jesus being God means God came, God lived, God died, and God rose to take away your sins because you couldn't do it yourself. Put another word in there. Try to figure it out. God was a teacher. God was a or not God was a teacher. A prophet came, a prophet lived, a prophet died, that it doesn't carry any punch. A teacher came, a teacher lived, a teacher died. What does that carry? I mean, you could put any word in there because everybody believes Jesus was a nice guy. But believing Jesus is a nice guy doesn't do you any good. 
if you don't believe that he was God. When you come to his teaching, I will tell you that uh, the questions of who this child was does not stop. Because many religions and many people just take the teachings of Jesus and say, you know, Jesus is somebody that can unlock our human potential, or Jesus is a good person that we can look at and observe and model ourselves after. Jesus was a good example for us to live by, and Jesus gives us the principles of how we need to live. And if you feed off Jesus, your life will be better. Don't listen to the messages of Jesus. And what I mean by that is people were listening to the message of Jesus. And when they would listen to the message of Jesus, they didn't say, that was a good message that unlocked my potential. They said words like this. Who is this person that turned that water into wine? The same question that was answered in the Christmas story. Who is the person where the wind and the seas obeys? Who is the person that teaches with this authority? I will tell you that the teaching of Jesus probably just went right over their head, and they just went to the question, who is that person? He acts like he speaks above even the law. Who is this person that heals the sick? Who is this person that, that says, take up your mat? And walk. Who is this person that raises the dead? Who is this person that forgives sin? Only God can do that. And who is this person? What I mean by don't listen to the message that Jesus preached is listen to the message of who he is. Because if you listen to the message of who he is and figure out his identity, that all of his sermons will make sense. All his sermons will make sense on steroids, but you see how the foundation of his messages exist is that he is God. Jesus is God who came, who lived, who died, and who rose to take away your sins because you could not do it. That is his message. That is his message. And everything else is around it, but that's the one point that he wants to give. Christianity, all other religions say we exist to obey laws, rules, principles, guidelines, instructions for a purpose of getting to God. If Jesus is God, then Jesus is saying you can't obey the rules, guidelines, and structures, and principles to get me. Therefore, I will specifically come to you and do everything you can't do. That's the heart of the gospel message. Christianity says God came to us because there's no laws, rules, principles, guidelines, or instructions that you can do. Therefore, I will do it instead. Jesus came and gave us the salvation. And the Christmas story unfolds that Jesus is God and you can have salvation by no other name than his because he is God. So it pierced many people's hearts in the Christmas story. It pierced many people's hearts as Paul was teaching it, as John was teaching it, as Peter was teaching it. But we can ask the question, does it pierce our heart? If there's one thing that Satan can do to Scripture is he wants to take the foundation that Jesus is not God and Jesus is a man because there's not a man that can save you. And if he can pull it into a man rather than God, he pulls God out of the equation for the salvation of your soul. And everything falls apart. So does it pierce your heart that Jesus is God, Jesus came, Jesus died, Jesus rose, because I can't do it myself. That is the salvation message. And the Christmas story is the foundation of that message. Father, we thank you for leaving heaven and coming to earth.
God, there is by no other name that we can be saved but by you. And the reason why is because you are God, King of kings, Lord of lords, who lived a perfect life, the life that none of us could live because we were born in the nature of sin. We thank you, God, for stepping out of heaven and giving us that gift, giving us that blessing, giving us the opportunity to embrace you for salvation. And God, by believing in you, we will be saved. I just pray, God, that we as a people, we as individuals, we as a church, uh, we as a country, we as a church across the world, that we will not remove the amazing truth that you are God. I just pray that we'll hold on to it fast so the teaching that you teach will make sense to us. In Christ's name, amen.